This is Food Issues. In every episode, we bring you experts to tackle the real challenges around feeding kids and offer practical insight to help organizations, communities, and parents create change. I'm your host, Julie Revelon. School lunch in the U.S. went through a ton of changes last year, some of which were because of COVID. In episode two, I talked with Colin Schwartz from the Center for Science and the Public Interest, and we took a deep dive into the issues and how all these changes may affect our kids' health. So be sure to listen to that episode. But I also wanted to talk about COVID's impact on schools and food service directors and what they have had to contend with. My guest today is Brandy Drybulbis. Brandy is the Director of School Food Operations at the Chef Ann Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization that works to provide school communities with the tools, training, resources, and funding necessary to create healthier food and redefine lunchroom environments. Recently, Brandy was the Director of Food Services for the school food program called NOSH at the Napa Valley Unified School District in Napa, California. There, she successfully transitioned the department from an outsourced food services program to a scratch-cooked, self-operating program. Nosh received an Innovation Award in 2019 for Fresh and Sustainable Kitchens. Before that, Brandy worked as an executive chef for Whole Foods and an award-winning restaurant in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. And she's an advocate for healthy food for school children. Well, Brandy, it is so good to welcome you to the Food Issues Podcast. Yes, thank you. Happy to be here. Great. So I want to start today by talking about the USDA's COVID-19 waivers and flexibilities that were implemented in 2020. Can you talk specifically about those and how they affected schools and also food service directors? Sure. So, you know, when the pandemic hit and, and schools were still trying to feed as many kids as possible, because the country was basically shut down. Um, There was many uh, waivers that were put into place, Um, certain waivers that provided key flexibilities like mealtime waivers, non-congregate feeding waivers, parent and guardian pickup food waivers, um, meal pattern flexibilities. And then there were some others like offer versus serve, the pandemic EBT, CEP extension, and fresh fruit and vegetable alternative site waivers. But then the big, the big waiver, of course, was the, the free un- universal meals uh, waiver that actually ended in the summer and then, of course, was extended again around Labor Day for the remainder of the school year and ends in uh, ends the last day of June. So, I you know, I think that these waivers were super important. They, uh, they allowed food services departments to more easily feed and take care of their school community. Okay. So you threw out a lot of acronyms there. So from a, for parents, what, how did it, what did it look like for them? Like what would they notice that may have changed? So I think one of the big ones was we saw a lot of school districts starting to serve um, breakfast and lunch and other meals curbside. So this would be part of the non-congregate feeding waiver, Um, you know, meal times. There was a waiver around meal times. So school districts started serving meals at non-traditional times, maybe early in the morning, maybe late in the evening, even though they were providing technically a breakfast and a lunch, it was at non-traditional times. Uh, The universal meals waiver um, was the waiver that required or uh, allowed school districts to feed all children for free with no questions asked. So anyone who was a student 18 years or younger 
was entitled to a free meal. Okay, great. And so obviously this has helped a lot of people who were dealing with food insecurity. Is that right? Yes, correct. Okay. Correct. And what have the effects been on the nutrition of these meals? Because something that I've noticed with my own children is once this went into effect and Previously, I would say that school meals were not the best. And it's something that I actually with other moms have advocated for healthier school meals in our district. But once the um, the the meal pattern waiver was was put into effect and uh, everyone is getting free meals, I noticed the nutritional quality, you know, decreased even more. You know, I think we've come a long way in our country as far as school meals have been concerned. We've seen a lot of movement towards health and scratch cooking and serving fresh fruits and vegetables. And there was, you know, a real movement around this. And we saw a lot of progress being made. And then when the pandemic hit, you know, school districts were working with skeleton crews. They were having to serve meals outside. They were having to serve meals to go style. So, you know, I think scratch cooking kind of went out the window at that point. It was, it was almost just too hard. You know, you were trying to staff a location, you were trying to, um, you know, figure out this remote feeding setting. All of a sudden you were trying to figure out what you could serve to go. Vendors were lacking products. It was hard to get certain things. So, you know, I think we did see kind of a rollback where a lot of school districts uh, had to resort to serving like prepackaged items or heat and serve items. And so, you know, we have seen the quality go, go downhill, unfortunately. Yeah. And that's true of, of districts who weren't, who weren't doing scratch cooking, right. Who were also they, the heat and serve type foods, but I would say that mm-hmm. the quality even went down there. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And also, this is something that um, I've spoken about with Colin Schwartz on a previous podcast episode, um, was that some of school districts were able to get some flexibilities around procurement. So they could say that they had hardship in finding a whole grain tortilla or whole grain bread. Is that right? Yes. And that's when the meal pattern flexibility waiver was passed because there was a lot of school districts where there was like a shortage of milk in the area. So they couldn't complete the meal pattern or you know, they weren't able to procure something that was, um, you know, 51% whole wheat. Their vendor was sending them like white tortillas or white bread instead. So that's when that meal pattern flexibility went into effect. Okay. And from a financial perspective, what have schools in the U.S. had to contend with during COVID? Well, it's been tough. You know, a lot of school districts have really been struggling. Uh, First of all, you know, one of the, a lot of school districts are paying 100% of their labor they have a full staff working, but they're feeding literally a third or a half of the amount of students that they were feeding at one time. So, you know, that's really taking a toll on school food programs. Um, you know, some of the unfortunately unprocessed food that we've been having to resort to is is a little more expensive. Um, you know, packaging is something that school food programs never really had to deal with in the past. And now all of a sudden we're buying packaging to figure out how to wrap up something that's made in-house and box it up to serve it on the curbside. So there's a lot of added costs that, you know, school food programs are having to deal with right now. So, you know, there's been some school districts who have been very creative at at how to figure this out and who are really, you know, benefiting from the school food uh, free meals waiver. You know, they've been reaping the rewards of that free reimbursement that's coming in. But there's a lot of school districts that are just really struggling with being able to figure out how to feed kids in their area. 
That's interesting. So what are the creative ways they've, they've come up with? So, you know, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of school districts are serving to-go side on the curb. So, you know, to-go style meals, they've um, kind of adapted and pivoted the times that they've been doing that. A lot of districts have adjusted their time and they're serving either early in the morning or late in the afternoon to accommodate working parents. Um, Serving to-go style food that they're sending home with kids that are in like a hybrid phase where kids are coming to school for a couple hours a day and the school food programs are sending those kids home with a bag of food that might include a meal for later that day or breakfast for the next morning. A lot of school districts are doing home deliveries where they're working with their transportation department um, to take food out to families that are maybe not able to um, get to those curbside locations or where their kids are doing remote learning, we're kind of taking the food to them. Okay. How do you feel about the school districts that are, you know, some of them are delivering the food on a cart basically to the classroom. Do you think that kids are more likely to eat the food because there's, it's, it's a calmer environment in the classroom? You know, I think it, I think it really depends on the classroom or the school. You know, there is a lot of um, service in the classroom going on because of not being able to socially distance in cafeterias. So, you know, some school districts have figured that out. They've either spaced out the lunch times, they've socially distanced their kids in the cafeterias, they've created extra space in the hallways or auditoriums where kids are eating. And then some are doing actual classroom service where they're serving a kid kids in the classroom, but all of that is extra labor as well. You know, now you're not just preparing food in the, a kitchen or a cafeteria. Now you're preparing that food, you're packaging it up, you're driving it down the hallway and delivering it to kids in the classroom and then coming back and cleaning up as well. So, you know, there's a lot of extra work involved in that as well. It's, and that's extra labor. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Okay. So let's talk about staffing cuts because this has been written about in the news a lot. And tell me why were those necessary for some districts and how has it affected schools and what they're now able to provide during COVID? So, you know, that's interesting because I'm that most of the school districts that I, we are working with the chef, at the Sheffield Foundation have not been doing staffing cuts. I know there's some states like California that actually has passed a bill regarding not being able to furlough anyone in the food service industry during the pandemic. So what's happening in districts like that is, you know, you have your full staff that's working, but you're not doing the same amount of meals as you were before. So, you know, you're kind of taking on that extra labor, which is costing the department a lot, or you're looking for something for those employees to do. So you're kind of spacing out the meals. Maybe you're not serving once a week, but you're serving every day in a remote style, or maybe you're working on new menu items for next year, or they're working on some online professional development. You know, they're trying to find things to, to fill the time for these employees. And then I think in other states, there has been some um, cuts to their food service labor because they're just not serving the number of kids that they were before. So they just can't warrant having a hundred percent of the the staff there when they're not, you know, when their participation is down so low. Right. And, and has it changed because of the staffing cuts? Has it changed how, you know, what they're able to provide or how they provide it? Um, you know, I, I would think that probably if you don't have the staff available, you're I think that's why a lot of districts have resorted to prepackaged items or heat and serve, it's it's the easiest thing to do right now, right? You know, if you don't yeah. have the staff available and you're trying to feed as many kids as you can, however you can, you're you're kind of resorting to the easiest way possible. 
Yeah. Do you think that like many things with COVID, how we've realized, oh, there's an easier way to do this, such as virtual meetings, right? Do you think that maybe the, some of these school districts will continue in this way? Well, I certainly hope not. And, you know, we're at the Shepham Foundation where we've been spending a lot of time over the last couple months um, working on some um, emergency feeding resources for our online tool, which is called the lunchbox.org. And, you know, we've um, we've uh, added some information on, you know, top our top 20 school food recipes that are easy to make that you can still serve to go. And we've given little tips on how to package those to go. We've also added some resources on bulk bulk meal kits where we're um, giving school districts suggestions and menus for um, feeding, you know, a bulk meal kit to a family, which would be a box full of seven days worth of breakfasts and lunches and how to put those together to make complete meals, maybe even including a recipe for those families to still be cooking at home. So, you know, we're still promoting um, scratch cooking. We know it's harder right now, but we're very hopeful that school districts will go back to this. Um, I think it's super important and we need to go back to that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so how have the changes disproportionately affected underserved communities? Well, you know, in my my time, I previously was the food services director in, in Napa, California for the Napa Valley Unified School District. And, you know, I, I was working in Napa when, when COVID hit, um, I just left this past summer, but I'm still very involved there. And, you know, I always like to talk about Napa because, you know, Napa was very much an agricultural immigrant community. Um, we had our enrollment in our school district was over 50% free and reduced. And we actually think that it's probably much higher than that. Our demographics were 60% Latin X. And so, you know, we know that we had a lot of food insecure families there. And when COVID hit, you know, we saw a huge hit to our to our community, especially, I believe, because there are so many families there that worked in the wine and the hospitality industry. And all of a sudden, those people were out of work and they're living in a very expensive environment. Right. So, you know, we we had to pivot as time went on, you know, and at first we were just trying to get the food out. And it was myself and a core group of five other employees and some really dedicated administrators. And we opened up three feeding sites that were geographically located in the school district. And, you know, we were doing that every day. And then we realized that maybe we should go to twice a week to limit um, exposure, both for us and for the families. So we started doing it twice a week. On Mondays, we would serve three, three days worth of meals, Thursdays, two days worth of meals. And then, you know, we realized that, you know, the pan- pandemic was here to stay for a while. And, you know, we got feedback that we needed something in the north part of town. So then we opened another location in the north part of, lo- of town. And then we were hearing that there was an area of town where there was a lot of low-income housing complexes. So we started working with our transportation department to send a bus with food on it to that area and hand out food in that area. And then the same thing was happening in a different area. So, you know, we were constantly pivoting and trying to adapt to whatever the need was. And then when we were able to start serving um, weekend meals, we started providing weekend meals. And then eventually, you know, that went to a one day a week box of food. Um, And, you know, we also started doing home deliveries. Um, There was a lot of families that we realized just didn't have transportation. So, you know, we wanted to to take the food to them and, and that grew and grew. And eventually, I think now they're at about 600 families a week just with their home deliveries. So. So, you know, I think it's I think it's all about finding those 
areas where food access is 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 harsh and you know finding ways to work with community partners and and people in your school district to to just get food out to those to our most vulnerable kids yeah absolutely so you run a self-operating program that provides scratch cook meals is that right in napa yes we were self-operated um when i came there the district had been outsourced to Sodexo for 33 years. And then um, after my first year there, we became self-operated. Great. So for listeners who don't know what that means, can you talk about the differences between self-operating and outsourced? Sure. So an outsourced program means that you're paying a food services management company to basically run your program. So there's costs associated with that management company. Um, You generally have limits on what you can order. Um, you know, there's generally a markup with the food because the food service management is, company is taking some sort of a percentage on that. And then a self-operated program means that it's district run. It's all in-house. Um, you have more of a say over your menu, the vendors that you're using and, and the quality of ingredients that you're bringing in as well. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a much better way to go. Okay. And does it operate under the National School Lunch Program? Yes. Okay. Yes, we were part of the National School Lunch Program. And what does that mean for for you and and for the district to operate under the National School Lunch Program? Yes. That so that means that you abide by the USDA nutrition guidelines, which means that you know um, all the meals that you put out have to hit the specific guidelines. Um, that means you have students that qualify for either free or reduced or paid status that you get reimbursed by the government depending on each status that the child qualifies for. And then you receive a yearly commodity um, allotment as well. Okay. So like I said, in, in here in Bethel, Connecticut, we, my a friend, friends of mine and myself formed a nutrition committee and we went into the superintendent of schools and tried to advocate for healthy, healthier school lunches and try to incorporate some scratch cooking. So for parents who want to do that, who want to go in and advocate for better school meals and they're they're with a food service provider, how can they how can they work with the district to to move them towards scratch cooking when when that clearly is more expensive? So so we get asked this question a lot and I think first and foremost it's most important for people that are interested in making a change like this to educate themselves to educate themselves on the National School Lunch Program the USDA guidelines and to educate themselves on what their school district's food services program is all about is it self-operated is it outsourced and then form an adv- this advocacy uh, group like you mentioned with you know other parents that are like-minded work with some administrators that, you know, are interested in this and and key community partners. And then, you know, there's a lot of things you can start doing. You can apply for grants for your school food program. You can start to make some changes to your wellness policy. You can work on nutrition education grants or nutrition education activities in your school cafeteria. Um, We have a lot of resources for parents on the Sheffield Foundation website as well. Um, if anybody's interested in learning more about that. But, you know, parents can make a huge difference. I always like to talk about when I came to Napa, um, there was three moms there who fought for school food reform for seven years prior to me getting there. Wow. You know, they were they really wanted to, to change what was going on in Napa. You know, um, working with the food services management company there, the, the costs had gone way up. The food quality had gone downhill. And, you know, there was a lot of kids in Napa that were, you know, really depending on, 
food at school and they weren't buying into it because the, the quality had gone down so far. So, you know, I think we had a lot of kids that maybe, you know, once we changed the school food program, that was the only access they were getting to fresh fruits and vegetables or to maybe a hot meal. So, you know, it was really important that we take, took better care of them through school food. And, and those moms, they ended up becoming very close friends of mine. Um, they would come in and eat school lunch with us. They were just very supportive in the community, talking to different groups about, you know, where our program was and, you know, what our goals were and the changes we were making along the way. And, and so, you know, I, I just love hearing about like mom groups and school districts that are interested in making a change because it is really important. Yes, absolutely. So the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act of 2010, which was Michelle Obama's initiative, made a lot of Mm -hmm. positive changes to school meals, such as putting in place standards for calories and sodium levels and fat and included adding whole grains and more fruits and vegetables. But one of the uh, criticisms from, from, I guess, other groups was that kids weren't necessarily eating the food and a lot of it was going to waste. So this has been hotly debated, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Do you think it's possible for kids to accept and love healthy, real foods that they're served in school, even if they're not eating that way at home? Yes, I absolutely do. I, I think that healthy meals can be successful in schools and I think you can get kids to eat that way, but I think it takes time. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. Traditionally, when you make that switch from heat and serve processed food to cooked from scratch, school districts will see their numbers go downhill. And it's, you know, it's a little discouraging, but you have to stick with it and you have to work on education and you have to, you know, tell the story of why you're feeding kids what they're, what you're feeding them. And you have to, you know, talk to kids and you have to, you know, um, do sampling and taste testing events and, and get the kids to taste the food. And you know, nine out of 10 times, if you can get the kids to try the food, then they'll see that they like it. And encouraging those parents to have their kids buy school lunch, because really participation is the name of the game in school lunch. But I I do think that, you know, there's there's a place for healthy meals in school food. Absolutely. Right. I remember watching um, a few videos and and we'll link to this in the show notes, but the Chef Anne Foundation has a ton of resources for parents. And there was a video of Chef Anne and she Mm -hmm. was talking about how she had gone, I guess she she was the um, food service director in a school and she was able to get a child to to eat fruits and vegetables or it was something along those lines. and, And the child had never tried that before because they weren't being served it at home. Right. Great, so with that, Brandy, we're going to take a break. Life is so hectic, so finding the time to get a healthy dinner on the table every night and save money on your grocery bill, it sounds like a pipe dream. But with the Dinner Daily, it can be a reality. The Dinner Daily isn't a meal kit, but a personalized dinner planning service that sends you meal plans and an organized grocery shopping list built around your food preferences, dietary needs, and family size. And it's the only service that uses your grocery store's weekly specials to help you save money, up to $1,200 a year or more. I discovered the Dinner Daily last year and it made meal planning so much easier. And my entire family loves the recipes, which are all healthy, balanced, and delicious. And most of them take only 30 minutes to make. The Dinner Daily not only saves you money on your grocery bill, but new members get two weeks free. And right now you can try it for 15% off with the code HEALTH15. 
Just go to thedinnerdaily.com and use code HEALTH15. And now let's get back to this week's episode of Food Issues. So in our last segment, we were talking about the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act and how serving healthy food in schools can encourage kids to eat that way at home if they have the education and the marketing really around healthy mm-hmm. food in, in school. And so in 2009, Congress introduced a bill to establish a universal school meals program. And the School Nutrition Association, they recently called for universal school meals and 64 national organizations and associations have now written President Biden and Vice President Harris to support it. So Brandy, do you think that this is necessary? And if so, why? I do think universal meals uh, is super important. I think there's a future for it. I think we're seeing it right now. We're seeing that it works. We know that it can make a difference. I think it would erase a lot of that stigma that's tied to, you know, we right now we categorize kids. Are you free? Are you reduced? Are you paid? And it's, you know, it's really not okay. And then, you know, school districts end up racking up these large um meal balances from kids that can't afford to to pay for their school lunch, but we're feeding them anyway. And that would erase that as well. So, you know, I think it's, I think it's super important. And I think that we need to keep pushing for something like that. We're seeing it working right now. And, and I do believe there's a future for that. Okay. And do you think that, so there's been no indication as to what the nutritional quality of these meals would be, but do you think they would be more nutritious, more nutritious, less nutritious? I think we're seeing some of the nutrition go down right now because of all the waivers. But I think, you know, I think that, you know, we should work on some of those issues instead of just creating waivers around it. And I think, you know, once we get past the pandemic and we're back in normal times, you know, there won't be a need for these waivers, but we will still need that universal meals bill. So, you know, I, I would like to hope that we would stick with the same USDA strict nutrition guidelines that we had to adhere to before the pandemic, even if there was a universal meals bill passed. Okay, great. So as I talked about before, the Chef Ann Foundation has a ton of resources for parents who want to go into their school districts and advocate for healthier school meals. So can you talk about the Chef Ann Foundation and their history and what their mission is? Sure. So this is the 11th year uh, for the Chef Ann Foundation. We are a national organization that promotes school food reform. We advocate for scratch cooking in school districts because we feel that this is the best way to provide a healthy meal to kids at school, which will better prepare them to learn throughout the day. So we work with school districts to make that transition to scratch cooking, both from funding and from online resources and from hands-on training and, and et cetera. Great. And so how can parents get more information and and advocate for healthier school meals? Um, You you can visit the Sheffield Foundation or the lunchbox.org as well. Okay, great. Well, Brandy, thank you so much for your time today. I really do appreciate it. And we'll definitely link to all of the um, Sheffield Foundation and anything else we've mentioned in this episode. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm Julie Revelant, and thank you for tuning into this episode of Food Issues. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review or share it with a friend. Also, be sure to sign up for my newsletter at julierevelant.com for exclusive updates and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.